They say money can't buy you happiness, but love isn't free. Welcome to The Cost of Love. In this series, we'll be chatting about the sacrifices, attitudes, highs and lows, as well as the emotional and material price we pay for love. Looking through a child's eyes, you think love is all butterflies and rainbows. But as you grow up, you start to realise that love comes with a little bit more of a price tag. Over the next five episodes, we'll unpack that there's a little bit more to love than meets the eye. Whether it's societal expectations, cultural barriers, financial pressure, or just wishful thinking. I'm Carmina. And I'm Kate. And you're listening to The Cost of Love. Brought to you by the New Zealand Broadcasting School. Hello and welcome back to the Cost of Love podcast. This is our fifth and final episode this week. It sure is. So what have we got coming up in the podcast, Carmina? We have got a continuation of the society and culture sort of theme. So we'll be wrapping up some loose ends. And as Kate said, it is coming to the end. So yeah, it's our final episode. So we're also going to be looking at some kind of overarching themes that we've found throughout this podcast journey. So first up, we spoke to Dr. Violetta Gilbert and we discussed things around large age gaps, polyamory, all those sorts of interesting things. So enjoy. I want to start by asking you, have attitudes changed around large age gaps with commonly negative perceptions of sugar daddies and cougars? So I think in a lot of ways, age gap relationships have come full circle, but they've stayed one-sided in plenty of others. Uh, so Historically, of course, it was always the woman who was younger. And the most practical reasoning for that, stretching beyond the appeal of a young and pretty wife, was that men can still conceive children in old age. However, in the more recent past, we've got social change, especially surrounding women's ability to work and loosening restrictions around both how she earns her money and what she can do with it. This has meant that age gap relationships with women being the senior party have become more common. Yes, uh, but the different attitudes applied to cougar and sugar daddy situations reveal that the gendering of age gap relationships is still uneven, in my mind at least. So, you know, we see sugar daddies represented as uh, powerful men enjoying their wealth and having a bit of a laugh. Sugar babies are empowered women getting that money, paying for college. Meanwhile, cougars are more often seen as uh, predatory or desperate um, and their younger male partners are usually kind of thought of as confused or in some way deficient because they can't pull a woman his own age. So yeah, um, it's, a, it's a rather mixed bag when age relationships uh, come into play or age gaps. But um, again, it's gotten rather more mixed in terms mm. of the options people have for pursuing relationships like that. Yeah. Could harem types of situation make a comeback into the mainstream, possibly under the title of the likes of polyamory? I think there's a chance. I mean, I wouldn't wish for the return of a harem specifically. <laughs> Again, it was, um, you know, women, in this case, a collective of women being kept or looked after by a powerful men, and that doesn't really pass the vibe check in today's world. But we are already okay. reading Vice articles about polyamorous unicorn cults sharing loft apartments in Brooklyn. So they're a little like, kind of representative examples, but I think broadly the idea of a polycule or a a group of people in a polyamorous relationship living together and operating socially and sexually um, as one unit is getting thrown around in the media. Definitely. It's being experimented with um, both in reality and uh, in the form of an idea, but I don't think it's becoming mainstream in any kind of normative way yet. Where are we headed to next with relationships in a diverse cultural landscape and evolving society? Speaking historically, I suppose love and relationships 
among human beings have become democratized, I'd say, broadly speaking. Um, that historically, uh, the entanglements and the experiments that uh, we enjoy today, most of us enjoy conditionally, I suppose, uh, these things would not have been available to us back in the day. We have so much freedom to disregard convention, um, to make our own mistakes and to find out what's right for us. Of course, this isn't just a change that human beings has, have decided should take place, but uh, changes which have happened naturally in our world. We're more mobile, we're more independent, we're more connected and globalized. Um, so all of these kind of conspired um, to make relationships freer and more open. We're no longer told what's right for us and what's right for society beyond the basics. And as long as we pay our taxes and don't get into trouble, where our love lives are concerned, we're pretty much free to do what we want. I think it would be really hard to be in a relationship with a big age gap because you only ever think the worst when you see that relationship because we're only ever shown those over-exaggerated relationships where, yeah, the chick is only in it to get the guy's money and he's like 18, she's 20, or mm. the woman is way older and she's only doing it to be like a cradle snatcher. You're only ever shown those really negative representations of them. So I think it would be really hard to be in that relationship because no one knows if it's legit, but also it's no one's business. Like if you love someone who's 20 years older than you, Sweet as. <laughs> it's nothing to me. So I was doing a bit of armchair psychology investigations, as I do, and I came across some research which the American Psychological Association did. So cross-culturally, men prefer partners three years younger than themselves, whereas women, also cross-culturally, prefer men of 3.5 years older than themselves on average. Mm, that makes a lot of sense because women mature, well, you're always told that women are more mature than men so they look for older relationships because they're looking for someone who's a little bit more mature and then I don't know guys probably just like having the younger woman I'm not sure yeah but it says also that age is more than just a number it all comes down to perceived age with findings pointing out people make their conclusions on age based off what's on the outside rather than a biological number ticking away which could give reason for why we try to appear more youthful, so us ladies with cosmetics or surgery, and the guys trying to come off as more mature, say like with their beards or dress sense. So moving right along, we have another quiz this week. This time we're gonna be looking into kind of laws and love and things that are a little bit different to what we know. So do you wanna go first, Carmina? Okay, I will. In which American state have polygamy laws been loosened? Um, where is that state with that massive polyamorous cult? I don't know. Utah? That's the one. You're oh, spot it? on. So under Senate Bill 102, signed in March and put into effect by May, a married person is able to take on additional spouses at the same time and not be subjected to felony charges, providing the new spouse entered into the union voluntarily. Making sure it's consensual was good, but I don't know how you proved that because I feel like that could be so easily forged. Definitely. Yeah. All right, so one of my questions for you. Around the world, which gender is penalised more for being in a same-sex relationship? Well, I would say women, but I could be wrong. Actually wrong for once. Women aren't penalised as highly as men for being in same-sex relationships. Oh, there you go. So in countries such as Syria, Malaysia, South Africa and even the United Kingdom, they have laws that prohibit same-sex relationships, but the penalties and what's written in the actual law applies more to men than it does for women, and it's a little bit unclear 
what laws apply to women so women can get away with it. I'm using air quotes here, but can get away with it more in a sense. So in Syria, it's still illegal to be in a same-sex relationship, but the laws are unclear for women. In Malaysia, it's still illegal. In South Africa, they made it legal in 1980, but it was always legal for women. And in the United Kingdom, they started making law changes from 1962, from 1982. But again, it was always legal for women. Well, not illegal, kind of a grey area Mm, there. Okay, that was a bit of a history lesson. Moving on, next up we have got another interview from Erin. Do you want to explain who that is, Carlina? Correct. Dr. Erin Harrington from the University of Canterbury. We first spoke to her in our first ever episode around media and media representations. So yet again, we are very lucky to have her on board and let's see what she has to say for herself. What has it meant throughout history to be a woman in a relationship? It has meant lots and lots of different things depending on the time and the place that you're in. Uh, For some women it has meant security, for others it has meant love, for others it has meant um, family and structure and community, for others it has meant entrapment. Uh, So the way that we have relationships always happens within the social contexts within which we exist and those have changed a lot over time. But um, certainly as we consider perhaps in the present day where at least say for instance in New Zealand for most cultures you'd enter into a relationship out of choice, Uh, you'd know your partner for instance um, as opposed to marriages that I don't know anything about from from other cultures. There are a hundred different reasons for why it is you'd want to be in a relationship, but they're always shaped by the social forces and structures around us. So which kind of social movements have been the most instrumental in changing perceptions around relationships? If we're thinking about New Zealand, contemporary New Zealand, uh, and in fact a lot of uh, Western countries, I would argue that second wave feminism did. Uh, so first wave feminism is where you're getting things like like women arguing to be able to vote and own property and have legal recognition. Second wave feminism was all about other kind of social roles, about the roles of women in relationships, uh, the ability to access proper health care, um, things like partnerships and abortion and work and workplace conditions and all those other sorts of things and I think that period in the 60s and 70s really changed the way maybe changed the expectations women might have had for relationships for themselves by working really hard to dismantle some of just the taken for granted assumptions about what a relationship is, what roles women have to have in society and um, how they may or may not be questioned. So how do you think Me Too has clarified or complicated the way modern society judges interactions, particularly between men and women? Well, it has both clarified and complicated. What What it has said is that we have to pay more attention at both a personal and structural level about the way that power is wielded in a patriarchal society by men against women. Um, And I know that some people will complain, oh, well, you can't even have a joke now. You can't even kind of do anything. But I think for a lot of people, it's meant that they've had to reflect upon how it is they um, interact with one another. Uh, For women, I know a lot of women who've had to reflect upon things that have happened to them that they've never really thought twice about until this and there's always going to be pushback and people saying well now you've just made it so that you can't do anything you know men can't be men and women can't be women but it's made us be even more cognizant about power disparity and power dynamics and 
how that works in the workplace, how that works in relationships. But but also, like yes, it is making a huge difference, but in other ways it's not going to at all uh, because there will always be areas of society that aren't going to be touched by that, that are their own kind of um, private universes perhaps. So we can't just look at it and go, hooray, all the work's done, now let's move on. This has to be a constant everyday fight to try and make sure that people are being treated well and with the respect and care and love that they deserve and that gender isn't wielded against people as a, as a weapon. One of my biggest takeaways from what I spoke with to Erin about was around the societal changes and how it's changing the game for how we even approach relationships, dating, what have you. So I went poking around for some stats and I found that CBS This Morning reported in 2018 that a dating company known by Match did a survey in America and found that almost half of the surveyed men are acting differently overall in regards to the Me Too movement. Hmm. So to break that down, 59% of all singles, men and women, said the movement was important. And then a third of men changed their behaviour on dates. So that could be like being more reserved, watching their jokes. And then three out of four men like women saying hi first. Hmm. So it's changing the game. And I found that when the Me Too movement thing was coming to surface, the most valuable conversations I had around it were actually with men rather than just with women because we can pretty much parrot the same things to one another. But with men, you're actually having a proper dialogue. Mm, I think also with women, there's a certain level of understanding and we've all been there in a sense, whereas having the conversation with men, you're you're not only educating them, but they're educating you as well. And I'm, I'm the same. I've had more valuable conversations with it, with men rather than women. Not taking anything away from the Me Too movement, I do think it's brought to light new challenges for young men who are dating because the movement has highlighted that there's really no rule book and it makes it really unclear to everyone who's trying to date. And I think in order to propel the movement forward even more, we need to constantly be open and honest and having conversations with men, not just shutting them down if something goes wrong. If somebody makes a mistake, if they're not informed, they don't know that they're making a mistake. So if something happens that's wrong, I think sit down with that person, have a conversation with them. That's going to help the movement so much more rather than being that, and I mentioned this before, but being that stereotypical like feminazi and mm. going down someone's throat when somebody makes a mistake. Because, I mean, not everyone is, is well educated in this conversation. Completely. And I think that um, behaviours aside, however they manifest, we should always keep an eye on the intentions. Yes. So some people have perfectly fine intentions, but, you know, culture and society are moving along. Some people keep up and some don't. Mm. They mean well, but what comes out of their mouth can just come across the wrong way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Sometimes people just put their foot in their mouth. And why is it ageing females, aka spinsters, get a bad rap or tears shed for them, whereas the general attitude towards bachelors is entirely different? It's, this is so annoying. It's such a... Um, it, it draws from a lot of things, and again, they, they point to the quote-unquote traditional roles of men and women in relationships and assumptions, cultural assumptions, that men um, are virile and want to sow their wild oats and whatever else and assumptions about women and women's roles in relationships cultural assumptions that women will want to have a relationship do want to have children want traditional family structures and all those sorts of things and 
I mean, you, you you look at not that long ago, you would have looked at an unmarried 22 or 23 year old and she would have been a spinster. And it would have been, oh, it's all over for her because she's no longer kind of reproductively capable. Although, you know, women can now, women have always been able to have children up until, you know, sort of into their 40s. And now with uh, reproductive technologies, that's that's more so the case too. But it speaks to assumptions that we have about the role of relationships in people's lives, assumptions about men and activity, and, and, and by that I mean as opposed to passivity, so that men might have this active force and they might want to sleep around and do all these other kind of things, and that's been um, catered to maybe because it fits within the binary assumptions that we might have about gender. Uh, but at the same time, you know, women have always kind of gone and done their thing but in some cases they've been you know turned into social pariahs for it you can think historically about the way you know women might have been framed as witches for daring to live alone or to do their own thing or the way that women who fought for careers and didn't want to be in relationships might have been turned into pariahs and other stuff but I but I think that's changing a lot um, it's it's still there and it still speaks to a really insidious assumption that women need a relationship to get by and that men can just keep having sex and whatever else uh, and also a cultural unwillingness I think sometimes to believe that maybe some women just don't want to have a relationship and don't want to have kids because there are lots of women who don't want to have kids including women who've had kids so yeah it's it's frustrating and that I think is a really good example of where these insidious power dynamics and binaries persist really strongly. And where to for a woman in love from here onwards? Uh, I think <laughs> I, I like I like RuPaul's you know if you can't love yourself how the hell are you going to love anybody else type thing but but also we we always have to reflect upon the cultural context that we live in and to think what are the messages that we receive and maybe I'm cool with those messages maybe I want to have what we now think of as a traditional you know relationship and have kids and have this and that and of course you know attitudes towards marriage have changed and child rearing and those kind of things but to be okay if if you don't want those dominant and normative things to be all right with it and to know that you're worth having something good and that you should be able to put your wants and your desires front and center and not just have to serve another because that happens all the time we're like you know we've just come out of lockdown and one of the big issues around work is that you know women who are often working from home then have their second shift where they might then be in charge of the children and the the household and this and that and to think well what division of labor do I want what power dynamics do I want what sort of a relationship and a friendship do I want with my partner does that look like something I've seen before and if not then that's cool where can I find my relationship heroes or um, frameworks that might really kind of suit me so I think just don't be boxed in and love yourself and be kind to yourself all right well that was it that was the last interview of the cost of love podcast what a journey it's been a big <laughs> journey i've learned so many things i don't know about you but i'm well educated now i believe hopefully still learning we're always still learning yeah so why don't you take the floor and tell us a bit about your biggest takeaways 
I think that this podcast has completely changed how I am consuming media. I was always kind of aware of the sexist things and the same narratives that we were seeing, but I kind of thought they only applied to like the 90s chick flick movies, whereas now I'm seeing it in absolutely everything I consume. Um, so this podcast has made me consume my media a lot more critically. Um, I'm looking at the themes and the narratives that I'm seeing and I'm challenging them rather than just accepting them in my head, I guess, internal dialogue. Um, and I'm also consuming different types of media and more diverse media. I'm looking outside my algorithm of content because you know how you get fed the same things. Oh, yeah. I'm starting to look outside my algorithm of content for new things and different voices and different stories rather than just the same old, same old all the mm, time. Yep. So, yeah, it's been a positive. I think another big point of learning for me is how love and relationships have a lot more to do with commercialism and even consumerism than what I originally thought. While it's tick in the profits box, how the individual is even benefiting from it when we're assigning flash expectations and debt to one of the most daring and wonderful features in the human experience, I just don't get it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I hope you have enjoyed the journey as much as we have. And oh, yeah. I think we're really going to miss it. But anyway, quick thank you to William Greenway, who did the intro and helped us with the overall sound of the podcast. Also, a massive thank you to my flatmates, Georgina, Alia, and Kahu. Thank you for taking time out of your busy uni schedules to sit in my room and talk to me. It was really fun. And lastly, a large thank you to the guests who also featured on this, the academics and the experts. You made a lot of this happen. Well, once again, I'm Kate. And I'm Carmina. And you've been listening to The Cost of Love. Thank you so much, guys. Bye.